I'd like to invite our children to head down to Transformation Station. So you can head back to the back there with our children's workers if you are a part of Transformation Station this morning. And I would like to invite the rest of us to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 8 this morning. So we'll be in Luke chapter 8 starting in verse 22. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there, that'll be page 865. Now, it's December 2nd, and that means not only that Christmas is on the horizon, which many of us are excited about, perhaps you've now put your Christmas tree up since we are past Thanksgiving, Uh, but it also, if you're a student, let me see, how many students do we have? Elementary, middle school, high school, college, grad school, we've got quite a few students in here, and I hate to kind of bring up a sore subject at this point, but many of you know that, hey, this is the time of the year where the workload increases and the exams, and particularly if you're in cause of final exams, hit, and they usually hit really, really hard. So uh, you can imagine as, as, a, as a, an athlete growing up, I might have fit the stereotype to some degree and not to some other degrees, I guess. I was, I was studious, but I wasn't necessarily a nerd. I was more focused on sports. But once I got to seminary and completed my undergrad, I like to tell people, and kind of half joking, half not, that I really became a nerd. That's why I like, hit seminary and stayed for seven years. Um, and, and one thing that I picked up in seminary was a new habit. I began to drink coffee to stay up at night to be able to read and to write papers and to study for exams. So uh, can anyone kind of identify with that a little bit? Maybe you've picked up that habit. Some might call it, it may be an addiction. So so we're we're kind of usually trying to find some way to kind of boost, give a boost of energy to help us in the tasks that we have and the responsibilities. And and, and so maybe for some of you even uh, have whipped out one of these. This is a five-hour energy drink, okay? So this is, this is for those that have great responsibility. I mean, you just gotta, you gotta pound out the work. And it's also maybe for some of us who practice great irresponsibility. In other words, you know, we're procrastinating and not getting our work done. So we resort to things like this to, you know, chug down and try to stay up and go at it. Now, let me just give a, a warning. The FDA just released a, a report a couple weeks ago that said that, that this was linked to 13 deaths in New York. So a word of caution. They actually, when I bought this this morning, they asked for my date of birth. So I wasn't like buying alcohol or cigarettes, but um, five-hour energy. They ask you for this. There's a caveat. Uh, be careful with uh, these five-hour energy drinks. But, but the point being that we're, we're always looking for this boost of energy, this boost of, you could say, power, strength, ability to get things done in our lives. Can you identify with this? And, you know, as we, as we think about what Luke 8 is going to unpack for us, it's going to teach us something about this, this concept of having strength, energy, power, and we're going to look at the power of Jesus this morning. I love what J.I. Packer says about those who know God truly. He says that those who know God have great energy for God. And so I want to ask you this morning, how well do you know who God is, who God really is, and what difference is that making in your life? The main encouragement for us this morning is to both recognize and receive the power of Jesus. 
Recognize and receive the power of Jesus. We're going to see this unfolded as we work our way through the major sections of this passage this morning. We're going to pick up in verses 22 through 24. This is what Luke writes. He says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as he sailed, as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. So how many of you enjoy a good storm? Anyone enjoy kind of a good storm that rolls in? I can remember growing up in Kentucky, we had more thunderstorms than we typically do in Massachusetts. So as a kid, man, when I heard the thunder, so the wind would pick up, the thunder would start to roll, lightning would flash, and sometimes I would just go out on my porch and kind of hang out before the torrential downpour came, just because I loved the power and the kind of excitement that a storm would bring. But I must say that while I might love a great storm on the front porch of my house, I can't say that I would love a great storm in the middle of the lake, like the disciples here. So you can see that, man, the, the, the scene is they were, they were completely gripped with fear. Rain was beating down. Waves were rising, crashing into the boat, filling the boat up with water. And they're screaming to one another, hey, we're going to die here. And I can't read this passage without thinking back to a movie that was released maybe about a decade ago based on some men in Gloucester, the, the Andrea Gale. Six of, of the crew were capsized and killed in what was called in 1991, The Perfect Storm. Have you seen this movie? And, and, and what's going on here in the Sea of Galilee? It wasn't a storm quite like that, but you have to remember, they weren't in a great ship either. I mean, the storm may not have been as great, but their lives were endangered nonetheless. And so they, in verse 24, go to Jesus. Master, Master, we're perishing. Can you do something about this? And what does it say about Jesus? It says, look, he was asleep in the boat. I mean, can we have a more stark contrast and composure between the, 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 the situation of the disciples yelling, screaming, panicking, fearing for their very lives, and Jesus is asleep. So they wake him up, and it says that Jesus, quite simply in verse 24, it says he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. So Jesus just wakes up, he speaks to the wind and the waves, and there is a hush, silence. There was a calm, the, the, a placid scene had returned to the lake. And it's interesting what Jesus does next. He moves from rebuking the wind and the waves to then rebuking his disciples in verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? 
I mean, did Jesus not say in verse 22, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake? I mean, there was no doubt in Jesus' mind that they were going to make it across, but these disciples must have kind of forgotten that or, or doubted that, and so they're lacking faith in this moment. And if we're honest, we probably would have been right there with them. But, but what is their response here? It says, they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. The disciples were stunned with fear and amazement, which is the natural reaction to an overwhelming, supernatural work of God. They're looking at each other. Did we see what we think we just saw? Seven-foot waves filling, crashing our boat. Jesus speaks a word, and it's stillness. And they're like, what on earth do we do with this? And it moves them to ask a most important question. Who then is this? Who is this? How are we to deal with this this man, this friend, this teacher that we are following? In other words, is Jesus, as some say, just merely a great teacher? Is Is he merely someone that we could pattern our lives after? Is he a mere man, or is he something so much greater, someone so much greater? Is Jesus God? Is he the one that should be the Lord of our lives? Does he deserve the highest allegiance and affection in my life? See, the disciples are wrestling here because they had read their Bibles. They had read the Old Testament. They knew in Psalm 89, verses 5 through 9, say this. This is so good. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and Awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who then is See, when we encounter the power of God, here's the first point. The the power of Jesus should cause us to reflect on his identity. And so if we were to go around Medford and go around greater Boston and ask people, hey, who do you think Jesus is? To you, who is Jesus? We're gonna get a plethora of responses, right? Oh, he was a great teacher. He was a wise sage. He was a great example He was apparently a pretty decent leader. A lot of good things that, you know, qualities in his life. He did a lot of nice things for people. But those are different answers altogether than he is God. So have you made this determination that all people must wrestle with and and answer the question, who then is this? 
the power of Jesus to cause us to reflect on his identity. Now, look in verses 26 through 33. It says that they get to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And they, they did make it to the other side, just as Jesus said. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilderness, to the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, Now a herd of of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep of the bank into the lake, and they were drowned. Now picture this. This is a a series of, of events. Let me just give you a little tip when you read the Gospel of Luke. Luke is not always sequential in his events, but he has taken different pieces of the life of Jesus and ordered them in a particular kind of way to communicate theological meaning on the person and work of Christ. But in this chapter, we have a sequence of events that are happening consecutively in the life of Christ. Luke says that as soon as he stepped out of the boat, there was a man with great need who came to him. And this was a man who had been ostracized and oppressed. He was a man who was not demon-possessed, but he was demons-possessed. For Jesus even asked, what is your name? And the demons respond, speaking, having been entered into the man, they say, our name is Legion, for we are many. This demon-possessed man was, was, was under spiritual oppression. And, and what, do we, what do we learn about these demons? Well, remember, Luke 4, we, we see that Jesus is engaged in a spiritual battle and, and his uh, you know, uh, wilderness temptations uh, are, are seen there in chapter 4. But, but that, that is not just the only time that Jesus is engaging the, the forces of darkness. It continues to happen again and again and again throughout the Gospels. So what do we learn about these demons? Well, number one, the demons know who Jesus is. You see what they said? They said, uh, you are the son of the most high God. That's how they address him. And what does this teach us? This this is a, a strong warning for those of us who even attend church and may kind of think we're in the faith because we ascribe to, you know, certain kind of uh, intellectual assent on who Jesus is. So, So let me explain. A person can say, I believe Jesus was a historical person who lived in the first century. A person can believe that Jesus really died, this Jesus really died on a Roman cross. That person could even believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world and was raised again so that whoever believes in him can have life, an abundant life, an eternal life. 
But that same person is not necessarily saved because they sign off on that mentally, intellectually. James 2 says even the demons believe in God and they, they shudder, they tremble. They, they know Jesus is the Son of God. They know that Jesus is, is, is the one, the Messiah. But that doesn't give them grace. It doesn't give them everlasting life. And so this, this intellectual understanding has to be transferred into a decision that says Jesus is Lord and I will follow him with my life and place my faith in him. Live the life that God always intended for me to live. But then number two, these demons know that they are no match for Jesus. Despite their power and despite their number, they ask him for permission not to to cast them into the abyss. Now, what is this? This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. The Old Te- in the Old Testament, it was the place for the dead. And it seems here that, that probably this was a place where demonic spirits would dwell. And so Luke is trying to teach us that Jesus is the powerful son of God who enters and overwhelms any dominion of evil. Now, verse 34 It says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So do you, do you see this? The, the herdsmen witness what's going on and they flee from the scene. They go and they spread the report in the country, in the city. Hey, this is what's going on out here. And you need to come and see what has happened. And, and think about this, this demon-possessed man, this one who had been bound in the city, perhaps for years, no one could control him, no one could heal him, no one wanted anything to do with him. When they, they, they come back and they see this man clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, completely changed, do they throw a great party for this momentous occasion? Do they, do they roll out the parade from the city, ticker tape? Man, let's, let's celebrate what has happened for this man who had been possessed by demons. No, not at all. Verse 37, it says, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They were seized with great fear. Again, they are, they are awed, they are stunned, and they are afraid. And you say, well, well why is this? And, and some scholars and commentators would say, you know what? They're, they're kind of fearful like we are sometimes of politicians, that Jesus is just like any of them, that he can't kind of fix the economy. In fact, he's only made it worse because look at all these pigs, this herd of pigs that we just lost. Man, that is really going to hurt the local economy here. We may not be able to have our you know, bacon uh, for breakfast. Is that, is that what's going on here? I don't think so. And why is that? Is because it says here that when they saw the man, 
This once crazy madman running around naked, cutting himself, demonically possessed. When they see this man in his right mind, just like them, they don't know how to handle it. Who are we dealing with here? You are too powerful. You are too dangerous. You are too unpredictable. It would be better for us if you would just leave. This is how the crowds responded to Jesus. But that is not how this healed, changed man responds to Jesus. We have already seen him sitting at Jesus' feet. It's a great follow-up from last week's sermon on receiving the word and the good soil of our hearts. And he's just soaking up what Jesus has to say, learning, listening, even progressing to, hey, Jesus, when you're, hey, Jesus is about to get in the boat. Hey, can I, can I get in the boat too? Man, I'll leave all this. I'll leave my home. I'll leave my family behind. They probably don't want anything to do with me anyway, but, but I'd rather, even if they do, I would rather follow you. What does Jesus say to this man? Hey, come on, go with us. You can be one of my disciples. In that sense, he says, no, 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 no. You can be one of my disciples, but you're going to be one of my disciples right here. Go proclaim and tell what God has done for you. And what does it say? He says he went throughout the whole city. He didn't tell just a few people, which would be a great start for most of us, right? So go and start there. But it says that he went throughout the whole city proclaiming, telling what, not what God had done, but what Jesus had done, which is what God had done. Jesus was the agent God was working through. And this is loaded with with application for us. Number one, Jesus may call some of us, give us an assignment to take the gospel Overseas. In fact, he has given us all of that responsibility, right? We are all called to pray and to give and to go. None of us are exempt from that. But what I'm talking about is he may move some of us to go overseas for our lives and take the gospel to the nations. But that's not the call for, for 100% of us. He's going to ask some of us to stay here, to be a witness for him right where we are. And what we see in this great example of faith and healing is that the change that Jesus brings is too good to keep quiet. Jesus, you can can change my life from the inside out. I mean, hey, listen, I know probably none of us here were like healed like this man, demonically oppressed and possessed, but, but all of us have issues, right? All of us have had brokenness in our lives that has needed to be healed, that continues to need to be healed. And for those of us that have experienced the salvation of Jesus, man, we have something to tell people about. So let's start. How about let's just take a small step this week and, you know, Perhaps many of us, it would be awesome if many of us could even share our story, share the gospel with someone. It's not that hard. You can do it. 60 seconds or less, bam, and then lead into some further conversations probably. But for some of us, maybe we just need to start by inviting someone to church, bringing someone to church with us. Listen to some research by Tom Rayner. He wrote a book last year called The Unchurched Next Door. Listen to, to four findings that he, that he had in his research. We already hit one of them in the video. Number one, most people come to church because of personal 
invitation. All right, so this is, this is no surprise here, right? We probably didn't need uh, Dr. Rayner to tell us that. Most people come to church because of personal invitation. But here's the bad news. Number two, seven out of 10 unchurched people have never been invited to church their entire life. That is not bad news. That is tragic news. Never been invited? I mean, we're not shoving the gospel down people's throats here, which we don't recommend anyway, but I mean, this is just an invitation. Like, hey, would you want to come with me sometime? That took a second and a half. Hey, would you like to come to church with me sometime? You know, like they're, they're probably not going to hate you after you say that. They might think you're like a little, oh, you're one of those Jewish people. But is, that, is it that hard? Do we value our our image and reputation in another person's eyes that much more than we... Sorry, I'm going to digress and get preachy. Um, that's tragic. Here's what's more tragic. Only 2%, this is stunning, only 2% of church-going people invite someone to church in a given year. Wow. I mean, hopefully that's not the case for Redemption Hill. I don't assume that it is. I assume we're way higher than this. But, but maybe you could just do an inventory. Where it's, it's, the, it's December after all. Have you invited someone to church this year? How many? If you have, how, how many people have you invited to come and to experience what we're talking about when we're saying that the gospel changes people and people change the world? That Jesus brings complete salvation, that he renews our souls, and he is, is bringing God's created order back into existence, beginning now and completely one day when he ushers in all of eternity. So, so let's, listen, let's be not just a church that has many individuals who are in the 2%. Let's just be a church that is in the 2%. We're going to have a members meeting tonight, and if you're not a member, you're still invited. You can come, because what we're going to be talking about is our vision for 2013, and, and one of the things, here's a little sneak peek, one of, one of our priorities and goals for 2013 is that there would be multiple friends brought every single Sunday to Redemption Hill. Not just, oh, they found out about us online. Oh, they found out about us on the T. Oh, they, you know, received an invite card, a free granola bar. I mean, you know, all of those things are fine and good. But most people come to church because of personal invitation. And, and look, here's the deal, man. God is doing a great work in our church. There's no doubt about it. But, but when this happens, think about this. If that happens in 2013, just look out. It's going to get dangerous around here. It's going to get unpredictable. It's going to get quite powerful, and people might not know what to do with a church that is growing, and you might say blowing up quite like that. So here's some motivation, some encouragement for you. 82% of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited. Okay, so this is not a guarantee. Hey, you invite them, 82% are in, but it is an indication that the first response is, no, you're crazy. And perhaps you've gotten that. I've gotten that before, but not usually. Because why? Because, because God has set eternity in our hearts. 
We know that there is something bigger, something more meaningful and ultimate in life than all of this kind of busyness and nine to five and what's going on and all the brokenness in the world. I mean, we know that something is not quite right. Cosmically, nationally, individually, and people are open. So can we be this kind of church in the 2%? Here's, here's, here's the deal. The power of Jesus should move us to proclaim his mercy to others. There's your second point. The, the, the power of Jesus should move us to tell other people about him. Now, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned back across to the other side of the lake, we shouldn't be so surprised that the crowd was there to welcome him. They couldn't wait to receive what he had to offer. Verse 41, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Why? For he had an only daughter. Luke was very detailed. An only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So we have this ruler of the synagogue. He was a man of reputable social standing. You might even call him a social elite. He was respected. He had authority in the city. And he comes to Jesus. And what does he do? He is in a situation of desperation. Because he has a daughter. Not just any daughter. His only daughter. And she is on the verge of death. So can you put yourself in his shoes for just a moment? You've left your daughter at home because you hear that Jesus is coming back across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and so maybe, just maybe, the doctors have tried to help, I mean, but maybe Jesus would, would come and have mercy and heal my only daughter. And so in a a move of of humility and desperation, in an act of submission, and even, maybe not yet, but for us, a posture of worship, he hits his knees. He says, Jesus, would you come? Would you heal my daughter? And it says at the end of verse 42 that Jesus went. I want us to stop here and think about this picture for a moment. I realize that many of us, when we think about bowing before Jesus, and and we do this most often in prayer, right? So let's think about our prayer lives for just a moment. Now, I realize that some of us have maybe not been taught on the one hand, or maybe we haven't seen a great example of different postures in prayer, okay? So you can ask yourself the question, man, do I ever get on my knees before God when I pray? But, but here's what I'm wrestling with, okay? Why am I not on my knees more? Is it because I haven't been taught? Is it because I don't see it? Is, or is there a lack of desire in my heart? Is there a lack of sense of desperation? God, you are the only answer, the only solution, the only one who can come through and deliver these requests. 
how are we going to pray? How are we going to pray for our friend who is encaptured by an addiction to alcohol or some other drug? How are we going to pray that God would give spiritual breakthrough to those that are sitting in a relationship that has been severed from him? How are we going to pray that the gospel go forth to the, to the nations? I mean, I know we desire that, right? But how great is our desire? How bad do we want it? Are we like Jairus at all? Do we just come and fall on our knees, fall on our face, get down before God and say, God, man, I do not have the power to change people, to bring healing, physical, spiritual. But you do. Let me introduce you to one of my new favorite animals. This right here is a camel. I, w- I would like to ride a camel one day. Anybody else? That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, fish, somebody. Some of you are scared. Did you know that camels can run up to 40 miles per hour and, and get a pretty good pace, about 25? Be, that's pretty exciting stuff. I mean, I, w- I would love to, to hang out with a camel. It's just such a beautiful creature after all, right? Would you say? I mean, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Don't, don't hate on me right now, Anthony, okay? It's not cool. So, so, so this is a camel. This is a camel kneeling. See that? There's one standing. There's one kneeling. This is how camels take a break, rest, allow people to hop on for a ride. They, they kneel. Now, let me show you this. This is a camel's knees. Not so pretty, hardened, calloused, beaten up. Now where on earth am I going with this? Here's where I'm going. Church tradition tells us that James, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem when the church was birthed after Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 2, um, had a nickname And his nickname was what? Old Camel Knees. And why was his nickname Old Camel Knees? Well, his name was Old Camel Knees because of his posture and his persistence in prayer. So look, James didn't walk around with the coolest nickname on the block, okay? If any of you start calling me Camel Knees, man, it's like over, okay? We're going to vote to get you out of here. But... But could there be very many more names more spiritually significant than this? So hungry for God, so desperate to see God move and to work in our lives. Let's be a church that hits our knees in humble desperation for one another, for those in our community, or for those that we're writing down on these invite and invest cards. Because we're confident that God can move mountains when we pray. Now, it says that as Jesus was going to Jairus' house, house, verse 43, the people were pressing around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. 
She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So basically, there is a woman who had this physical issue. Scholars probably say it was some kind of uterine uh, hemorrhage, and no doctors could fix it. In fact, she had spent all she had to be healed. And this wasn't just, you know, some, some physical kind of ailments that was a major issue for for. A woman in Israel at that time, this meant that she was unclean, that she was a social outcast that had great embarrassment all the days of her life. This wasn't just a physical issue, this was an emotional issue. And so she hears that Jesus has come. And so she's thinking, man, if I can just get close enough, I can beg him to heal him because no one else can help me. And it says that she gets close enough to touch the fringe, the edge of his garment, and immediately she is healed. And immediately when that happens, Jesus knows, hey, something went on. He says, who touched me? Have you ever been in a crowd, maybe at a concert or a sporting event, or, and you're just kind of pressed in all around? You can barely you know, make it through people. It's just that crowded. This is the picture that we have here. And so, so Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter, you know, loudmouth disciple Peter is like, dude, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everyone is touching you. Everyone is pressing in on you. Why are you asking who touched you? And Jesus is like, no, 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 Peter. <laughs> you don't get it. I perceive that power has gone out for me. And so picture this. I mean, the crowd has now stopped. There's a conversation. Peter, Jesus, people are listening in. People are now asking the question. They probably believe Jesus more than Peter. So they're like, I wonder who touched touched Jesus. And this lady, verse 47, says she comes and she trembles. And what does she do? The posture of worship. She falls at his feet. You healed me. When no one else could, you healed me. And I love what Jesus says in verse 48. He says, daughter. It's the only time in the Gospels Jesus addresses someone as daughter. It's a term of affection and love. I have two daughters. I love them like no other kid on the planet. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Faith heals us, not because it is meritorious, okay? In other words, our faith is not what saves us. Jesus saves us. But our faith is what? It's a picture. It's an action of trusting, not in ourselves any longer, but trusting in Jesus, what he can do for us. So in this instance, she needed physical healing. And that may be you today. That may be someone that you love needs that today. And we can pray. And I can't promise that God will heal, but I know that he can heal. But all of us need spiritual healing, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. We can go to Jesus in faith, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in him and say, God, heal me. Jesus, heal me. Save me. And he will say, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in the spiritual wholeness and flourishing that I can give you. So now verses 49 to the end of the chapter, says this, back to Jairus. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, 
Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus hears this and he answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, James, and John, the kind of inner circle of disciples, his closest disciples. He takes them into the house with the father and mother of the child. Verse 52, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. This is preposterous. We checked her pulse. She is dead. But, verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Do you see what Luke's doing here? He's helping us wrestle with the identity of Jesus. And he has just told us that Jesus has power. He has authority to go back to chapter 7. He has authority over nature. He has authority and power over spiritual forces. He has power and authority over disease. And he has power and authority over death. There is nothing, there is nothing in our lives that we will face ever that Jesus cannot overcome. I don't care if it's a physical ailment. I don't care if it's a spiritual stronghold. I don't care if it's it's a lack of faith or, I mean, God, can you really come through? Whatever Whatever that kind of is attached to for you, God has the power to change lives and he will one day change this whole deal, this whole world. It's part of what the resurrection means. I mean, this is not just Easter. Okay, Jesus was born Christmas to die, crucifixion, raised, resurrection, Easter, but, but this Let's make the resurrection practical and tangible for us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. So we have no excuse. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Peter would say, this disciple who saw these things, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, we, his divine powers gives everything we need for life and godliness to our knowledge of him who calls by his own glory and goodness into the knowledge of him. So what's holding us back? Absolutely nothing with the power of Christ. And so here's what I want to do. Let me give you the third point. The power of Jesus flows to those with a posture of desperation. And and, and this is the conclusion of the sermon, by the way. It's something a little different. I want to invite Micah and and, uh, Karen and Unita to come back up. And and they're just going to kind of begin to play for us. And before we sing today, I want us to be invited to wrestle with the identity of Jesus. I mean, have you trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord? Is he just a mere man or is he God? 
If you need to make a decision, say, look, Jesus, man, I'm, I'm in now. Like, I'm, I'm convinced, man, the Spirit is like opening my eyes to this, and I need Christ. Then you can just call out to God right now. Admit your need for him. Believe in who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross, dying for us in our place, that we might have this resurrected, powerful life in him. Maybe that's you, but for for others and maybe for for all of us this is not like a a a rule it's not you know if you don't choose to do it you're okay we still you know love you and you're still like we don't assume upon your spirituality but we're gonna do something a little different today okay i'm gonna invite you just for a, a moment or two maybe a few moments to come down if anyone's moved just to pray we're just gonna kind of make this you know some churches like have an altar okay so this is like our flat floored altar 